Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Hap Klopp, ex-CEO and founder of The North Face, one of the world's leading outdoor apparel brands. Hap realized the void in current jackets not being insulated well enough for further exploration. This inspired Hap to create North Face as it is today. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by founder and ex-CEO of The North Face, Hap Klopp. Hap, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Cameron. Of course. So I want to start things out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, which is uh, near the Canadian border on the eastern edge of uh, the state of Washington. And it was uh, a small town, uh, a couple hundred thousand people. it was one where you spend most of your time out of doors, mm-hmm. ultimately led to my involvement in North Face uh, because I was familiar with that and knew uh, a lot about the outdoors or thought I did and, and thought I knew what sort of great product was there. But uh, there aren't a lot of professional sports or things. And at the time I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of television either. So when you uh, did things, you went outdoors and, and it was hiking, climbing, kayaking, uh, you, you name it, we did those things. And and I stayed there until I went on to university. I went to Stanford, uh, had an undergraduate degree there, and then I uh, got an MBA. And actually, that's kind of is what the pivot caused me to make sure I was an entrepreneur, that while I was an undergraduate, my father died. Mm. And we had a family company. And the family company uh, made wood windows, frames, sash, and door. But we were fairly small compared to Weyerhaeuser, at that time, Boise Cascade, Anderson Window Wall. But we uh, we had put all the windows in the Empire State Building. We contributed wow. uh, to Levittown, Chicago Merchandise Mart, things like that. So uh, I ended up, that was during my senior year that my father passed away, and I ended up uh, running the company at the same time uh, that I was studying to uh, try and finish my studies. Uh, when I say running the company, I was doing more governance than anything else, but I was flying back and forth. Yeah. Stanford is located uh, around San Francisco, so it's about a 900-mile difference. So, uh, so I was trying to do those two things, and probably the thing I did most that I tell people was I drank beer and I was pretty good at that. <laughs> that's, that's the student and, and the governance, I, I don't know how good I was, but I, I did look at that and say, is this an opportunity that I should pursue? I concluded that it wasn't because we were too small to be competitive. And I did an analysis that, that said that if we were going to be successful, what we we're going to do is we're going to have to move the facilities from Spokane closer to where the timber was. So we didn't spend so much money on transportation of timber and whatever. Mm-hmm. And the timber was getting further and further away from the city. Uh, the, the second thing we were going to have to do is invest in, in a lot more equipment uh, that was more sophisticated and new. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is I'm probably going to have to fire most of the management because they really weren't uh, uh, contemporary in their thinking. And I'd yeah. known most of those people my whole life. So that all of those things were fairly daunting. So I concluded that what I would do is uh, try to sell the company. And mm-hmm. I then uh, applied, got into the Stanford MBA program, and then had four jobs. Uh, one being a student, getting my uh, degree, the second one running the company, the third one selling the company, and the fourth one 
was drinking beer. <laughs> and uh, again, I continued to be good at drinking beer, but uh, uh, the, we were successful in selling the company between my first and second years of my MBA program. And uh, so at that point, I tasted running a company. I liked it. Uh, I thought that I should run a company. I actually thought that maybe somebody would ask me to run their company because here I'm going to have a Stanford MBA and I, yeah. yeah, I'd run a company and whatever, but not a lot of people offered me that opportunity. So I ended up with some interviews doing things the way a lot of MBAs do. And that is, why don't you look at a large company, work there, and then spend uh, your part of your time looking for an opportunity on the outside. If you want to be an entrepreneur, that's kind of the approach. Yeah. I didn't feel comfortable with that, uh, frankly, because that sort of smacked of only giving about 60 or 70% of myself to the company. I'm one of those that believes you should throw yourself 120% into whatever you do. And, uh, and even if it was 120%, I was only given 60. So, yeah. uh, but uh, there weren't a lot of offers. So what I did was uh, interview. I interviewed with a lot of CPG companies uh, because I thought I had a flair for marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be a place to do that. And ended up getting some interviews with some of the best. Uh, the one that made me pivot to uh, being an entrepreneur was uh, Procter & Gamble. Okay. They invited me to Cincinnati and did an eight-hour interview as they wow. often do eight hours, uh, one hour each with eight different people, and they make an assessment of you. And conversely, you make a, uh, an assessment of them. And if it's a match, you, you, you agree and go on. But the interview that I had uh, was the first hours with the HR department. And, and it was turned out to be a great interview, although I make light of it. I mean, the first thing he said, is your name Hap or is it Kenneth? I see both <laughs> on your CV. And I said, well, you know, it could be either one, but most of my friends call me Hap. He said, well, when you work here, it'll be Kenneth. Nicknames don't give you the gravitas necessary to manage older people, and that's what you'd be doing in this job. Mm -hmm. I took that in advisement and feeling even more uncomfortable. And uh, then he said, in the same vein, you should be wearing a white shirt and a tie. Well, I'm not enthusiastic about white shirt and ties, and <laughs> I'm wearing one, but if they didn't think I could fit in there, uh, you know, that was the case. And then, you know, we talked about a number of things and, and I had a lot of idiosyncratic ideas that I had developed uh, when I was growing up. I worked at a variety of jobs, laboring jobs and, and such. Uh, so met a real range of people. When I was hiking, I hiked with people that spent a lot of time in the wilderness and their views were things about, you know, nature and the preservation of nature. Uh, they were about no planned obsolescence. Uh, they were about equity in terms of hiring, that women should be paid the same as men, that that you shouldn't worry about where somebody came from or what their sexual persuasion was. Just hire the best. Move yeah. ahead. I had all those ideas. Well, as, as we talked about what they were doing there, I didn't get the impression that they or many of their contemporary companies at that time had that. So <laughs> added all those up and I just knew, you know, I'm in the wrong place. And, and that's, he asked the final question, which sealed it. And that's the one that always asked in these interviews, asking, you know, if you were to join our company, where do you envision you would be in five years? Yeah. You, you always hear that. And, I, <laughs> and knowing I'm out of there, I said, well, if I were to join 
Procter & Gamble, and I'd like to underscore the word if, uh, I would expect to be president of Procter & Gamble in five years. Oh, wow. And uh, I said, and that means passing you in about five minutes, but I don't <laughs> think that's any good deal. The, the strange thing is they offered me a job. Um, but it was a great interview. Yeah. And probably because oftentimes when you interview, people ask you, what do you want? Mm -hmm. Of course, you tell them and you lay everything out and they say, boy, are you lucky that that's what this place is just like. Yeah. Then osmotically over time, it dawns on you that that isn't the way it is at all. What, what the, the gentleman did who was doing the interview was telling me what the big business environment was that existed out there and allowing me to make the decision of did I fit in? And the reality is I did not fit in. Mm -hmm. I, my idiosyncratic ideas, my, you know, I was obstreperous, uh, couldn't necessarily work for anybody else. And so if you can't work for anybody else, then what you have to do is start your own company. Yeah. And at that point, I realized that I'm going to have to start a company and there's only a few things I know a lot of, about. So let's start one of those. And the outdoor was the idea. So I studied it for six months, bought some stores uh, that existed so I'd have cash flow mm -hmm. and set about developing a brand, set about developing a product line, set about developing two or three key products. Initially, they were all outdoor products, sleeping bags, packs. Mm -hmm. Quickly, we got into tents and, and then some funky clothing. Did you acquire any funding for these initial stores or how did you purchase those? Well, I had some money because we'd sold the family company. Okay. And that that allowed me to do that. It wasn't a lot because it was divided up between my brothers and myself and some of it was in trust, but enough to be able to to take over the stores and operate them uh at that time. And and the they'd been started. The name was actually already on the stores. Doug Tompkins had started those. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug later went on to great fame in terms of he and his wife started a spree, uh, and then they uh, Doug took his money and went down and did a preservation efforts in South America. Uh, great, you know, millions of acres of land that he was able to preserve. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, uh, he, he died two years ago, an unfortunate kayaking accident, but uh, great work. But mm -hmm. at that time, he developed a couple of stores. They only had about 300,000 in sales volume uh, between the two stores. And he decided he wanted to go skiing, he wanted to be on the U.S. ski team and be outdoors. So uh, it seemed like a good opportunity to buy some of those stores because what I knew was I've, I had an idea of developing a really disruptive uh, product line, which was going to be much more expensive than anything that existed out there. But I knew having been a user of these products that, that the expense wasn't the key. Did it function well? Did you have a sleeping bag that frankly would be warm all night long rather than the ones I had where you were so cold at four o'clock in the morning, you wouldn't get out of the sleeping bag because you'd be even colder, <laughs> for sure. but you couldn't sleep. And I knew people would pay a few hundred dollars more for something like that. I also knew that if you used lightweight materials, uh, that people would go further into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I was a believer in Thoreau's uh, comment, which was, in nature is the preservation of the earth and the preservation of the world. And, and I was fed up with what was happening in the world at that time. That was 68. Okay. That was when we had violence in the street, not dissimilar to what we have now. Yeah. Uh, 
it was a time in which the free speech movement exists, anti-war sentiment. And what I believed was that if people went to the wilderness, they would get it back in touch with real values. And those values are one that could guide society to a preservation that was going to be greater. Mm -hmm. And so I believed if we made these lightweight materials, instead of going 100 feet into the wilderness, which most people were doing uh, just as camping, they would actually get into the deep wilderness, later be known, became known as backpacking, that women would join the activity because it wasn't a beast of burden act any longer. Mm -hmm. And that's what we set about doing. Wow. So when you started out, it was just retail and were you using existing products or did you establish there a new product line at the start? There were some existing products because what I wanted, and, and I failed to touch on that point, what I wanted was cash flow because I knew that it, that it would take a long time. I knew about a product adoption cycle that's kind of a bell-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at it, it forms an S over time, but it doesn't immediately jump out and be successful no matter what you have. Yeah. And, and so I had to figure out a way to have enough cash flow coming in while people were learning about our product, while they were realizing it was better, while they were trying to do that. And the idea was to have these stores that would sell uh, parallel products, but would sell products that, uh, that we wouldn't make or that we wouldn't make until much later, and products which would give us some cash flow coming in on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So we sold pitons and carabiners, and we sold some climbing ropes, and we sold day packs, and we sold a little bit of ski gear uh, that existed in there. And by doing that, it allowed us the runway for the product line which we were developing to organically grow. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember we were so excited because uh, Jack Gilbert, who was vice president then, went on a big sales trip up and down the entire uh, West Coast trying to find sporting goods stores that would buy our product. And he came back with one big order from Powell's Sporting Goods in Portland, Oregon for 14 sleeping bags. Wow. And that was the sum total of our sales. But we knew we'd broken through. It wasn't just ourselves. Yeah. But as I said, we needed the stores for cash flow. Uh, we laughed about it being Safeway money, but you needed some Safeway money to <laughs> money to eat while we uh, while we built the idea and the brand. Yeah. So these initial stores, where were they located again? These were on the West Coast, correct? One was in San Francisco and one was in Palo Alto. Okay. Palo Alto is uh, where Stanford is down down the peninsula. When when we started, I immediately added another store which was in Berkeley and made the back half of it manufacturing hmm. and the front half was a store. And, you know, we talked about the benefit of consumers seeing the, the makers and makers seeing the consumers. And there was some of that, but there was also the benefit that you sort of have the, uh, the rent on a retail store or have the rent on a manufacturing so that we could get both of those there. Got it. So when you transitioned to manufacture your own line, what was the first product that North Face manufactured? We actually made two products at the same time okay. uh, uh, because of a variety of things, and I'll come back to it. But the, the first one was a sleeping bag and a, and a pack. And our pack was a disruptive pack. It was an internal frame pack. At that time, there was external frame packs. Kelty existed. Trapper Nelsons were available at REI, which existed then. And then there were day packs. We wanted a pack where you could carry a lot of weight, but didn't have the restrictions that an external frame would provide. So we came up with an internal pack, 
actually Stuart Ruth designed it and we were able to uh, get that. We called it the Ruth sack and it was one that had a frame there. And then our sleeping bag used unique zippers and the highest quality goose down that was available at that time uh, to make the warmest bag. And then we used, what we did was a couple of things and that's why we immediately got into tents. Mm -hmm. We decided that what would be disruptive, I decided what would be disruptive is use materials from the Vietnam War that were in excess, uh, that would be favorable in price, but would be revolutionary. We took uh, a aircraft aluminum and made tent poles and pack frames. We took parachute cloth and we made sleeping bags. We made tent tops and later some funky clothing. And it lightened the load by about 50% of what people were presently carrying. Mm -hmm. And that would go back to what I talked about of really facilitating people going deep into the wilderness. Yeah, got it. So were you manufacturing in-house then? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, when you say manufacturing, it, 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 it's sort of giving us a benefit we didn't do. I mean, I'm sure everything's <laughs> illegal. The back half, we had a cutting table that almost went across the entire <laughs> room that we had, and it probably, hopefully, the fire department never saw it. Uh, but and we had four seamstresses that were there, and uh, <laughs> we would work on it and go back and forth. But we we made it all in house there, and then we continued to expand. We moved out of that moved into a, uh, one facility in Berkeley and then grew out of that, took on a couple more and then took over a, a uh, larger facility. And at one point had over a thousand employees wow. manufacturing in Berkeley. That's amazing. So during your early years, what would you say were your focal point roles? So marketing, uh, design, etc. You're talking about mine yeah, or you're talking your about personal, your personal, your personal. Yeah. Well, you, you do it all when you start a company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so so that was the case. I I always knew that we needed to build a brand, so that was a focus. Mm -hmm. I was also very big on strategy, and and those two things came together because as I teach and and also as I do in some of my uh, consulting when I consult with companies, it's a brand is not a logo, a brand is not a tagline, a brand is understanding what your DNA is, and then making sure that every touch point you have whether it's with customers or vendors or suppliers or employees is all done in that same way. Yeah. And so we identified three words and would constantly come back to those three words that were there and they tied to the strategy. And our three words were disruption, quality, and triple bottom line, mm. triple bottom line being an equal commitment to, to profits, to the planet and to people. Uh, we call it uh, commitments to environment and society, but uh, so what we did then, I focused on one, trying to educate people. I didn't hire anybody who actually had business training. Okay. Uh, and I figured I could train them on business. I'd had an MBA, I'd run a company, and I knew some of that. What we hired for was passion. Mm. Passion for two things. One was a passion for the out of doors. And the second thing was a passion for changing the world. Because as I said, we, we thought we were going to change the world by getting people into the wilderness. We thought the world needed changing. Mm -hmm. uh, the store we'd opened up where the manufacturing was, was in Berkeley. And that was the epicenter of a lot of the turmoil going on at that time, the free speech movement there, the anti-war movement. Uh, so we were right in tune with what was going on. 
and we uh, we built on that platform uh, to be able to accomplish it. Now, uh, I would say that you, you have to know finance. I know some of that. You know, and I was working with the bankers, and you have to know uh, basically. I, I knew everything about the business probably other than I didn't have a clue about how to sew a product. I Got didn't know, know any of that. Yeah. And so we hired a couple of, of people who are seamstresses and we were asking them to train us on how to do these things rather than us train them. Did you eventually make products yourself then after that training? Did I? Yeah. No. Okay. No. So you hired no, them no. on full time. I didn't, yeah, didn't dare make a product and give it to anybody. <laughs> I can only imagine what would have happened, but uh, no, they were much better at it and they had the skills of doing it. And, uh, and, and so we accomplished that. We, we talked about what we needed to accomplish and then mm -hmm. they, they would show us how to make it that way. Got it. So without internet at this time, how would you advertise the North Face to attract more customers? Well, word of mouth, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the way you do anything. And, and you always try to use influencers Influencers are very big in, in internet right now, but influencers have been there all along. Many of the people we hung out with, many of the people who uh, initially used our product were very influential, either climbers or hikers, people that were going up Mount Everest, uh, people that were uh, part of the Sierra Club, and all, all of those people uh, influenced others. Usually yeah. it's pyramid shaped. And the, the people at the top influence the, you know, the next level, which might be avid users that would only go out of doors. And then there's another layer under that. Secondary users, people that might bike, or they might kayak, they, they might do some backpacking, they might do some climbing, but they do a variety of things. And then below that is probably the, the people that are, are into whatever fashionable, whatever the flavor of the month is. Yeah. And what we knew was that everybody on that pyramid knew where they were and they all looked to the people above them for recommendations on product. And so we focused on making products for the people at the top of the pyramid, the influencers, mm -hmm. the athletes, the people who are our friends. And through their word of mouth, through their support, through their implied endorsement, uh, we were able to get other people to look at our product line. Got it. So, during this time, what would that influencer process look like? Was it paid or just product disbursement? Because I understand how it works modern day, but what would that look like back then? Well, it worked much better then because yeah. we didn't pay anybody. Uh, fortunately, most of the people we knew didn't have any money. So they, <laughs> they didn't want any money. They just wanted to get outdoors and what they wanted is gear. So yeah. if we could provide them gear, that was good. Now, what we did, which was really unique, is we never gave anything away. Okay. And it made it more special. I always described it as unobtainium. You know, what everybody wants is what they can't get. For sure. And the, what we told people is you have to return the item after you've used it, uh, maybe for a season or whatever, because we want to study then how it wore, what the products looked like or whatever. Mm-hmm. Half of that was what the reason we wanted it back. The other half was we wanted to create a specialness about our product. We didn't want to just give somebody something, have them think it was worth nothing, and then uh, put it in their garage or give it to one of their friends because it wasn't there. We wanted them to know it was special. Yeah. And so 
so what we did was provide them product which they couldn't get anywhere else because it was better than anything they were doing. And it facilitated them going elsewhere. I, I remember it was ways down the road, but I got a call from England uh, from Sir Chris Bonington. He wasn't Sir at that time. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I've heard all about your products. I'm headed next week to Everest. I'd like one of your tents. And okay. I said, well, that's, it's, Great. Yeah. Love to have you use it. And the, the good thing is I'm got a business trip planned to England tomorrow. Wow. I'll personally deliver it. Well, I didn't really have a business trip planned, but <laughs> <laughs> but I I did the next day and I flew over there. He took a product right off of our production line because it, it was the best. They knew that because of the reputation of some other climbers using it, that these withstood the, the strongest winds, the type that you might encounter when you're in the Himalayas. And as a result of it, that making the best product, the very best was a way to really influence people. For sure. Now, what we tried to do, going back to that DNA I talked about, is we tried to do storytelling around each of the points so that it could be easily told first by influencers, but also by other people to third parties. Because when your story is told by people further and further away from you, it gets stronger and stronger in terms of, of an endorsement of your product. Mm -hmm. So a key that we did in terms of undermining or under, overselling the point and not undermining our product was in terms of quality, we put a lifetime warranty on our product. Mm. And that basically was that if anything went wrong, return it for replacement or repair. Was this on everything? On everything. That's amazing. Okay. And it never cost us more than one and one half percent of sale. But talk about a story that really uh, spoke to everybody. It spoke to the people making the product yeah. about how good the, they had to be. It spoke to some of the vendors who said, listen, I'm not going to sell to you because you're going to be coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> My materials are not going to work. So it, so that story was when you had those stories, they had to be real. But if you handed those off and told them often enough to the influencers, it gave them a way to describe what you have that would then add to that influence. For sure. So when their year or whenever the time period was that their, um, their product would run out and they would have to return it, how do you create the lasting partnership? Would you send them another product or how would that typically look? We, we could. I mean, if they were really uh, a good influencer, mm -hmm. uh, and by that I mean that you know, they, they actually appreciated what they got, uh, and not everybody did. Some were just great athletes, but they <laughs> didn't care a whole lot about our contribution. Then, then we sort of drifted away from them and spent you know, more of our time uh, giving product to the people who repeatedly would come back. We liked people who actually developed slideshows and whatever of the trips they were going on and were good communicators because obviously that served our purpose of marketing, mm -hmm. the implied marketing that came from them. So we, we sort of doubled down on the people that were good influencers and we sort of drifted away from those who weren't so good and uh, that we were able to build on that. Amazing. So something I like to ask is this, what was it about your products or apparel that separated the North Face from your competitors with your time at the company? 
Well, the first thing was the point we were trying to do. We were trying to make gear that was lighter weight than anybody else to facilitate people getting deeper into the wilderness. Lighter weight, but still, we called it bomb proof. You know, it wasn't going to fail because it was going to be a lifetime product. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really differentiated from a lot of people out there. Some people were making general camping products uh, that were heavy. Uh, many of them were uh, less expensive than ours, but we were making top-end lightweight gear to go into the wilderness. We also were committed to disruptive materials wherever we were. We're one of the first uh, to embrace Gore-Tex. And Gore-Tex was known for being waterproof breathable, but what we found was we could use it to actually get into skiing. Because mm. the skiers we knew and the ones that were going to influence were ones doing all sorts of acrobatics, flips and things off of rocks up at Squaw Valley. Yeah. Uh, Scott Schmidt was one, the Egan brothers, others. And when we talked with them, they said, what we need is clothing that stops the wind so we can be warm, but is not bulky. Because when we were trying to do all of these acrobatics, the bulkiness really gets in the way. Well, the Gore-Tex for us initially allowed something that stopped the wind from cutting through, which made it a fairly warm garment, but closely fitted to them. So, uh, so it was that sort of innovation of materials that allowed us really to differentiate with that. And then of course, as I said, I always believe in brand. And from day one, we were a brand that stood for something. We stood for the best. We stood for innovative materials, disruption, if you will, mm -hmm. and also the, the policies we had in terms of the people we employed and, and how we treated them. And, and we always spoke a variety of languages. As we grew, we ended up speaking 14 different languages in our factory wow. so that we could hire anybody that we wanted in there. It also helped us expand globally because we could go almost anywhere yeah. uh, from either from sourcing or selling or whatever. Uh, so we were known as being a great employer, which helps you in your local community also become a great seller. Uh, because of our practices, because we'd hire almost anybody, we were an employer for choice. And because we treated people fairly, the word spread. Now, we had to help propagate that so other people knew about it in other geographical areas. But if you were around Berkeley, if you're around San Francisco, if you're around uh, Yosemite, if you're around Tahoe, people would know that, boy, you've got a product from a really great company. Yeah. And then, strangely enough, we argued for two years about whether we should put a logo on a product. And we finally concluded that our best salesperson was our product. It worked. Mm -hmm. And so, since we didn't have much money to advertise, what we decided is, well, the advertisement we can do is put our logo on the product. So if somebody sees a jacket and they like it, or somebody says, God, I've got the greatest uh, sleeping bag in the world, it would be obvious to somebody else whose product it was. And so after arguing, because we said, oh, doesn't it screw up the look of it or whatever, <laughs> we boldly put logos on everything. Mm. And that, that helped us get the word out. That's so interesting. So when did that come about? The logos actually onto the products run what year? Well, uh, we played with it off and on, but it was probably two years into our production before that was the case. Now, wow. uh, if you look at any of the jackets that we initially produced, they didn't have any logos on the outside of them. Sleeping bags had logo, but it was on the label, which was inside the product. 
yeah. as in the jackets and things, mm -hmm. but then putting it boldly outside, which was basically embroidering it on the outside, that took a while for us to do it. As I said, in, you know, the, the brand is known so much for the logo right now. Mm -hmm. that it's kind of humorous to think that we wouldn't put it on the product, <laughs> but, but that was our thinking. And, and by the way, probably the first week after I'd taken over the stores, and I knew I was launching the company, we set about trying to create the logo. Mm -hmm. And I, I hired a graphic designer who was a local kid coming out of school, and he came up with 10 ideas. Uh, nine of them I thought were lousy. Uh, I wasn't sure that the logo uh, that we chose was great, but it's the same one we have to this day. And there's only been wow. one change that was made in that, and that is that w we, at, in certain applications, put a background behind the logo. Initially it had no background, but we put a rectangular logo around it. You oftentimes see it in red as a way to have it stand out because if you're trying to put it on a store or trying to put it on a building or something like that, uh, the logo alone doesn't work very well because it's kind of cumbersome. But other than that, it's the same logo from day one. And uh, we paid all of $250 for the logo. Wow. Now, we did give the gentleman, Dave Alcorn, additional work after that. And he helped uh, do everything from creating packaging for us to whatever. So, so I mean, he got some additional work from us, but uh, it wasn't like we went out and, and spent $10,000 or yeah. 50000 or $100,000 to get some logo and build it. We just uh, got it, registered it, and, uh, and that's the brand. That's amazing. So, what did you portray to him when creating the logo that you were looking for? What was the vision behind the three curves? We told him it was about the, the wilderness. We told him that, you know, we were trying to get climbers and people uh, involved, uh, mm -hmm. that we were, uh, that we were basically creating the best. And, and from that people have argued about what it might stand for. We always described it as a waterfall when we wrote it. But it also, if you look at it, it looks like Half Dome in Yosemite. Yeah. The shape of it. Mm -hmm. And that combined with putting the name out there, the three words, the North Face, uh, he, he, we talked about it. And he said that, you know, one of the ways you get the name out there is by having the name and the logo. If you have two separate things, then you've got two jobs. Yeah. And since we knew we were going to build a brand, making the logo the brand, the logo the name, was a really rapid way to get our name out there. Mm. So looking up to 1990, around the time you stepped down, yep. if you have an idea, how many locations and kind of like where dispersed was the North Face at this time? Well, I mean, we were all over the globe with what we sold, not a whole lot there. Yeah, I would say 60% of our sales were in the U.S. Uh, we had a strong presence in Japan. We had a strong presence in Europe. We'd set up a manufacturing in Scotland to be able to service the European market mm. uh, inside the EU. And, uh, and we were doing some production in Asia, uh, but still a bunch uh, in the U.S. And we were uh, there. We, I would say we did a little bit of sales in South America and uh, in the Antipodes, but not a whole lot because of that. Yeah, uh, but you know we were in pretty much those touch point. We sold a lot of specialty retail stores, um, many of which don't exist any longer. Big box kind of won out, but there were a lot of chains that we sold to in the U.S. that might have eight stores, 
High Country Outfitters was one, Backcountry was another one um, that we sold. Backwoods was another one we sold. And they would have eight or nine stores, usually around uh, student campuses uh, that would be uh, around the US. Mm -hmm. And uh, then of course we sold in Canada and uh, Canada was a good market for us. Although most of the Canadian market population wise is only about 30 minutes from the US border. So it didn't require a lot of different marketing uh, than what we were doing. Got it. So also around this time, what did the North Face offer product wise, say uh, sports industries? We, well, we offered the what we call backpacking products, yeah. uh, hard goods, sleeping bags, tents, and packs. Mm-hmm. We had uh, ski gear, okay. Our ski wear line. We had some sportswear, which we were, which was an extension of our uh, apparel line. But we had a, a bunch of apparel. Uh, however, if you looked at the apparel, most of it was outerwear. Okay. Although we sold things, we we sold some layering. Uh, we uh, took fleece and used it as a mid layer. Uh, actually that was pioneered by Patagonia when they brought out what was known as Cinchilla at that time. Uh, but then we jumped on that and had a mid layer. And so layering as a way to dress was a big deal. We were most noted for the outer layers we had, but we sold mid layers and that got to be a fairly large business. And then we had some base layer and we weren't a large player at, at, at that level. Got it. So looking at North Face today, what would you say is your personal um, favorite product to this day? If you still wear North Face apparel or the backpacks, what would you say is yours? Yeah, I I wear some of the apparel. I don't go out uh, hiking as much as I did anymore. I'm a little bit older and not quite as fit as I was. But uh, (laughs) so I like the jacket. They've got a new material which they brought in, which is a competitor to Gore, Mm -hmm. which is a lightweight, uh, waterproof, breathable uh, material. I like that because it's actually more breathable than Gore-Tex. It, uh, and as a result of that, you can wear it a lot in, in the city, say San Francisco, Seattle, where it might be damp part of the year, but you don't need a heavy uh, coat. You just need something that's going to keep the rain off of you, yeah. water repellency. So, uh, so that's a favorite. I'm you know, I've got a couple of things like mountain jackets that they have that they, they reconstituted but made with uh, better materials than we had. So I've got a few down products uh, that exist there. Uh, still got tents uh, that we have, but frankly, the tents I have, <laughs> lifelong warranty because they last forever. I mm. probably haven't gotten a new tent in 20 years. Wow. The ones they have are great. It's tremendous. So I end each episode with this question, and I think you're a really good candidate behind your legacy with this one. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret, just anything. There's probably two things. Okay. I mean, the first one is a, is a quote from uh, Goethe, which is uh, the German philosopher. He said, whatever you can do, begin it. Because boldness has genius and power and magic in it. And you can talk about things forever, uh, but until you go out and try to develop it, uh, you don't know. And that's what design thinking is all about. Rapid prototyping, you make some samples, and then people react to that. While you're talking about it, people don't understand what you're doing. So, um, 
So I, I would encourage entrepreneurs to, to just begin it if that's the case. Mm. The second thing I would advise is uh, while it's absolutely essential that you have a business plan, don't become wedded to that business plan because almost every single business plan I've seen that's been developed has to change when you find out the realities of the marketplace. You have to pivot. And if you doggedly try to force your initial concept on the marketplace, you rather than pivot and, and look, maybe you, you design 20 products and uh, you find only five of them work. Maybe you just you think that you're a, a global company, but you find that uh, there's only certain cities in which your product sells, whatever. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is be able to have a business plan and do all of those planning, but then listen to what's actually coming back from the marketplace and pivot and redo your business plan relative to what you've learned. Amazing. Well. Hap, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, I'd like to recommend re uh, reading Hap's book, Conquering the North Face, an Adventure in Leadership. It's just a tremendous book covering leadership and business and life. Also, check out The North Face at northface.com. Thank you, Cameron. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.